Good morning to those at home. Good morning to those here. Thanks for working with us as we've been trying to take advantage of some opportunities to connect those of you who've been worshiping at home with those who've been worshiping here in the building on Sunday mornings and, and vice versa. So on Ash Wednesday, we started releasing one video per day, a Lenten devotional uh, made by the folks here in our congregation and who have been worshiping from home. I don't know about you, but I've been blown away by the depth, by the vulnerability, by the insights that have been shared by those whose videos have been released so far. So if you're behind on those, they're just three or four minutes each, so you could uh, get caught up tonight while you're doing dishes, just half an hour. And, uh, you know, I, I just highly recommend making a point to log on to Realm uh, this week and hear how God has worked in the hearts of many men and women in our congregation. If you've been blessed by one of those videos, you might consider sending a note of encouragement to those who have opened up so vulnerably. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Author, speaker, missionary, Elizabeth Elliot. She used to tell this story of a scene that she witnessed while visiting a friend at a sheep farm in Wales. The friend she's visiting was a shepherd there. In that, in that area, there are parasites that are deadly for sheep if the sheep aren't treated for them. So the shepherds have to dunk their sheep under this antiseptic solution uh, for a prolonged period of time in order to kill the insects in order for the sheep to live. But of course, the sheep don't understand why their shepherd is seemingly attempting to drown them. So Elizabeth Elliot describes the scene like this. One by one, John seized the animals. They would struggle to climb out the side, and Mac, the sheepdog, would snap at their faces to force them back under. When they tried to climb up the ramp in a panicky way at the far end, John the farmer would catch them, spin them around, force them under again, holding them ears, eyes, and nose submerged for a few seconds. And as their lord and master was pushing their head under, drowning them, at least as far as they could tell, their panicky little eyes would look up over the edge of the vat, and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What is God doing? Can you imagine being one of those sheep? Elizabeth Elliot actually could imagine that. If you're familiar with her story, you know her first husband was murdered, second husband died of cancer. When she looked at those sheep, she understood their feeling of confusion about why the great shepherd would inflict such extreme discomfort without explanation. And maybe you can imagine being that sheep too. Maybe the one thing that made life feel worth living for you, maybe God recently took it away. Or maybe God is just now asking you to lay down that thing that you treasure most, but you don't want to. And, and you honestly don't really understand why he's even asking you to. In our scripture today, we're going to see a time in which Abraham must have felt like one of those sheep. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 22? 
Genesis 22. You're going to want to be there with me. As you're turning there, let's retrace Abraham's journey for a moment. At this point, Abraham's life, it has come full circle from where and when God called him first, back at age 75. In the 35 years or so since then, Abraham has been on a journey with regard to the deepest desires of his heart. What are the deepest desires of his heart? This is a guy who's shown he isn't fueled by riches. He can do without a permanent home. He's fine living in a tent. But to live without a son? That's what Abraham has yearned for. Descendants. To be the father of a great nation. And now, in chapter 22, after years and years of trying in various ways to make the promise of descendants come true on his own power, Abraham has finally received the desire of his heart. Last chapter, 21, saw Sarah give birth to a son at 90 years old. Isaac, the child of the promise through whom God is going to create a great nation. What a happy ending after a long and painful period of waiting. But then, in our scripture text today, God calls Abraham to the mountain. Some of you are well acquainted with the mountain to which God calls Abraham. In fact, most of us will be called to this mountain at least a few times over the course of our lives. I'm talking about the mountain at which God says something like this. Take that which you treasure most, climb that mountain, and leave it there on the mountain with me. Have you ever been called to that mountain? Some of you have just this year as God has taken a loved one home and seemingly ripped them out of your arms. Those creating the Lent devotional videos have been to that mountain. That's the essence of each of the stories that they've been sharing with us. They are relating times in which God has shown them that which they treasure most and said, bring it up the mountain to me. When God does that, when he holds us under the antiseptic, and it seems like he's going to drown us, when he takes us to the base of the mountain and says, bring that which you love up to me, it's a test. The story we're about to read will use that very word for it, a test. But God doesn't assign the cruel sort of test that we might imagine. Actually, when we look at some of the folks in the Bible who knew him best, we find them crying out to him saying, test me, please. Because they understand something about testing. Namely, we can only be certain that our faith is genuine once that faith is tested. As such, when God tests us, it's not because he's out to get us. It's not a game for him to dunk us in the antiseptic and hold our faces under. Rather, by doing so, even when we can't understand it, the test demonstrates and verifies the actual character of our faith. So there are basically three sections of the story we're about to uh, take a look at. Uh, the first one is the setup of the test itself, then compliance and approval. Test, compliance, approval. We'll read each of these in turn. Abraham is tested first. He complies with God's demands and God approves at the end that he has passed the test. So first, the test in verses 1 and 2. The test is stated simply here. 
Try to put yourself in Abraham's shoes as we read these two verses to imagine the layers of tension that would have been involved as he heard this command from God. After these things, Isaac's birth, God uh, making a place for him in the promised land, him planting a tree there, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham's whole life is built to this. I wonder how many of us have had a moment that fell in that category. One of those moments where it feels like everything up to now has been leading up to now. Like this is it. It has all come full circle. This is the defining moment of my life so far. I wonder how many of you have an experience like that. It may sound like a trivial thing, but for me, uh, my last ever football game felt a bit that way. Like my whole 22 years of life at that point had built to this. I had the privilege of sharing that moment with my dad. Uh, the night before the game, during my last year of college football, he was my coach. Uh, so we took a walk in the team hotel the night before that game, the night before I laced up my cleats for the last time. And as we looked out the windows over the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia, my dad started tearing up a little, put his arm around me. He said, well, son, your life has come full circle. You were born in Virginia. Now you're playing your last game here in Virginia. That's when I said, well, Dad, my sister was born in Virginia, but I was actually born in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I give him a hard time for that. So maybe that wasn't as full circle of a moment as my dad thought it was. But at the outset of chapter 22, Abraham's life actually has come full circle. Uh at least the 35 years of his life since God called him to wander from his home. Let's retrace those 35 years just very briefly. Remember, the call happened back in chapter 12. That's where we met Abraham, end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12. We began journeying with him there. Now we're reading chapter 22, so 12 and 22. Let's look at the commonalities between those two chapters, 12 and 22, that frame these two passages as bookends of Abraham's story in a way. So first off, you've got a phrase that only appears twice in all of Genesis, Hebrew, lekracha, it's translated go in our translations, literally it's go for yourself, go for you. The first time it's go for yourself from your country and your kindred and your father's house. This time in chapter 22, it's take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go for yourself to the region of Moriah. Only two times that phrase is used. And speaking of Moriah, that's another commonality. In chapter 12, Abraham heeds God's call, enters the land God sends him to, pitches camp at a place called Mora, which means vision. And then in chapter 22, God directs him to the mountains of Moriah, one letter different in Hebrew. And in its own way, this is another mountain of vision, so to speak, because we'll see in verse 8 that Moriah is the place where God will make visible the lamb. A third similarity. Uh, go for yourself, go for yourself. Mora, Moriah, one more. In both chapters 12 and 22, the destination isn't specified. Do you notice that? Chapter 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And here in chapter 22, 
Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the Lamb Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. Of which I shall tell you. Both times, he's called to go without knowing exactly where God would lead. The author surely wants us to see these two chapters as bookends of Abraham's story. So, what's the test in each chapter? What's the test? In chapter 12, the test was something like this. Will you lay down, Abraham, that which you know in order to get what your heart desires? Will you leave your family, your kindred, your father's house in order to get fatherhood, a great nation? And now in chapter 22, it's will you lay down your heart's desires in order to obey God? I'm talking about it in terms of Abraham's heart's desires, by the way, because do you see how God talks about Isaac in the verses we just read? He doesn't just say, offer up Isaac. What's he say? Offer up your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This isn't a request for some arbit- any arbitrary old sacrifice. Right? This is a request for that which is most absolutely dear to Abraham. It's a test. There's a tension between the command God has given, offer your son, and the promise that all nations will be blessed through this son and his descendants. The command and the promise seem mutually exclusive. So for Abraham, it's how can I obey God's command and see God's promises come true? But it's deeper than just that, though, isn't it? Underneath the tension between command and promise, Abraham is being confronted by this soul-exposing question that Derek brought up moments ago. Do I worship God for God's sake, or do I worship God in order to obtain the desires of my heart? Do I worship God for God's sake, or do I worship God in order to obtain the real desires of my heart? If you're a worshiper of God here this morning, Let's ask that of ourselves. Why do we worship God? Not in theory, but really, why do we worship God? Do we worship him for his sake, or do we worship him in order to obtain that which we really want out of life, whether that's control or wealth or a good reputation or children or a certain kind of children? When worshiping God results in us getting the desires of our hearts, like during those seasons of life when it seems like he's giving us everything we could have ever dreamed of, it's actually hard during those seasons, isn't it, to know the answer to that question, whether we're actually worshiping God for God or whether we would stop worshiping him if he allowed the removal of that which we really treasure. But conversely, when worshiping God takes us to the mountain where we're called to lay down the desires of our hearts, in other words, during those seasons of life in which He's dunking us under the antiseptic, or at least that's how it feels. Our motives for worship can get exposed for what they really are, one way or the other. Do we worship him for him? That's the test. Let's move now to Abraham's compliance, second section of our text, verses 3 through 10. Follow along with me as I read the account of Abraham complying with God's command. And see if you can pick up on any clues here in the text as to why Abraham seems to comply with some level of confidence. Let's pick up in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose 
and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father? And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So, in the very next verse, after God tells Abraham, offer your son as a burnt offering, we read, so Abraham rose early in the morning and got to it, verse 3. And our study Bibles, commentaries, praise him for his immediate obedience. Here's a question I have. Why didn't Abraham protest? At least for a little while. Like four chapters ago, when God said he was considering destroying Sodom, Abraham begged and pleaded with God not to do it. And we praised him for that. And here when God says it's time to sacrifice your son, he just promptly obeys. Why? The answer to that question is multifaceted, I think. <clears throat> but one answer we can find directly in our text is Abraham believes he's coming back with Isaac. Peek again at verse 5 with me. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. There's no way Abraham climbs that mountain so confidently, resolutely, if he doesn't believe that he and Isaac are both coming back. Right? Say you offered to lend me your car. Right? If you don't have a strong belief that you're going to get that car back from me intact, you're going to be really hesitant to hand me those keys. True? But Abraham doesn't seem all that hesitant. And one reason is that he believes he's getting Isaac back from this whole ordeal intact. Now, is there any indication that he knows exactly how he's going to get Isaac back intact? I don't think so. After all, in verse 10, he raises the knife. He doesn't know what God will do. He's just seen enough of God at this point to know that God will somehow make good on his promises. Like, worst case, if he does end up having to go all the way through with sacrificing his son, God can raise the dead. That's how the writer to the Hebrews analyzes this passage, by the way. 2,000 years after this, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. As the writer of the Hebrews, this is after Jesus now, reflects on this passage. He says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
we can see now that that's not just imaginative thinking on the part of this New Testament author 2,000 years later, right? It's baked into the Genesis text itself when Abraham tells his young men in 22.5, hey, Isaac and I are both coming back. I think that belief on Abraham's part is a major reason why Abraham resolutely sets out without complaint in verses 3 to 5. It's a three-day journey he embarks on. It's a lot of time to think about this, to question whether it was really God's voice that he heard. Turn back, maybe. He doesn't change his mind. And, you know, this whole episode raises a major problem for us as modern readers, right? Because we're reading this in the year 2021. I'm actually take a few minutes as an aside just to address this. Because as we're reading this 2021, we've become aware that many people have religious delusions that sound a lot like this one. Like the one Abraham claims to experience here. For example, Dan Lafferty from Utah, 1984. Walked up to his 15-month-old niece, smiling in her crib, and said, quote, I'm not sure what this is about, but apparently it's God's will that you leave this world. Perhaps we can talk about it later. This is him retelling the story after he killed her with a 10-inch boning knife. And walked to the kitchen and killed the baby's mother with the same knife. Why? Because he had what he believed was a handwritten revelation from God telling him to do this. He recalled the events of the, that day like this. It was like someone had taken me by the hand that day and led me comfortably through everything that happened. These lives were to be taken. I was the one who was supposed to do it. And if God wants something to be done, it will be done. You don't want to offend him by refusing to do his work. When he was arrested, by the way, he said, this wasn't a homicide I committed because I was doing God's will, which isn't a crime. Sorry to bring up such a terrible story, but there's a question here that we have to wrestle with seriously. Namely, how is Abraham raising the knife to kill his son different from Dan Lafferty in Utah? British scholar Matthew Rowley provides a helpful analysis. It's too long to unpack fully here. I'll link to it in an email this week. But here are a few of the differences that he points out between Abraham and someone like Dan Lafferty. One, Abraham at this point has a long history of miracles confirming that he was indeed rightly hearing God's voice and not delusional. In other words, if Abraham would have heard this voice back in chapter 12, when it all started out, when he first heard from God, Abraham would have been right to say, that's insane. There's no way that's the voice of God. I'm not listening to that. Right? That would have been the right response by him back in chapter 12. It's only after the events of chapters 12 through 21 that Abraham can trust this voice without compromising his rationality. We might say it this way. After all Abraham has seen, this isn't actually blind faith that he's exercising. This is actually a faith that's working itself out in accord with reason. One more difference between Abraham and the person who uh, hears a voice in a dream today telling them to kill a child. Abraham's unique in redemptive history. None of us play the same role he did. None of us have the same relationship with God that he had. Now, of course, there's plenty that we all have in common with Abraham, and I don't want to downplay all that we can learn from him, but as we put ourselves tentatively in Abraham's shoes as we have week after week for several weeks now 
we do well to continue reminding ourselves of a key difference, actually, between Abraham and us, namely, that we aren't prophets who, whose ability to hear the Lord is recognized by everyone around us because it has been validated by multiple large-scale miracles. So, I wish I didn't have to say this, but it's important. If you hear a voice from God that's telling you to do something contradictory to what he commands in his word, for example, kill a child, that's not the voice of God. And if I ever tell you, try to tell any of you that I've heard from God telling me to do something that violates his command in scripture, please grab me by the collar and plead with me to listen to reason. So, having established that you and I aren't Abraham in an important sense, and therefore shouldn't expect an experience that's just like this one, look at how the narrative slows down at this point. Verse 6. He's kind of progressing pretty quickly here. He's moving along with it. He's traveling to the destination. In verse 6, it slows down. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. They went both of them together. And Isaac speaks, Abraham responds. Isaac speaks, Abraham responds. So they went both of them together, and they came to the place. You see? The drama's thick. But as it unfolds, isn't it astounding how compliant Isaac is? You notice that? You get the picture here of a kid who is at least old enough to carry a big pile of wood on his back for a sacrifice, right? Nevertheless, not arguing with his 110-year-old father or availing himself of the opportunity to break free from him as he surely could have. There's trust here. And when we leave off at the end of verse 10, Abraham is really going to go through with it. The command is the command. And so now the knife is in his hand. There's only one thing left to do, and he's ready to do it, believing that somehow God's promises are going to come true anyway. Do we share Abraham's belief that if we trust God, we also will somehow see his promises come true? That's a hard question to consider in the abstract, but let's, let's make it concrete. Let me offer a concrete one to consider. A concrete promise from God for you and for me. Psalm 37, delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. What about that promise? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that if you delight yourself in the Lord, that God will give you the desires of your heart? In other words, do you believe that if you respond to God in faith by laying down before him that which is most dear to you, that he will either give back that which is most dear to you or give you something that's even better? Do you believe that? When God brings us to the mountain, that question about whether we trust or not will be the question that determines whether, we, whether or not we comply with his commands. So we've seen the test. We've seen Abraham's compliance, and now we see God's approval. Let's see God's response to Abraham's compliance with God's commands, starting with verse 11. But the angel of the Lord, often the spokesperson for God, if not God himself in Scripture, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. 
And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of, instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, at the time that this is written, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. There are conditional promises and unconditional promises. In Thursday's highlights, I tried to unpack some of each in the life of Abraham and in our lives. You know, as parents of a three-year-old, Sarah and I, we, we aren't above making the occasional conditional promise, right? Some of you know what I mean. Like, you'll get some TV time during your brother's nap if, it's a condition, right? If you obey all morning, right? Obey mommy and daddy this morning. That's a conditional promise. And when we make that sort of a promise, we don't flinch on that condition, but here's the thing, <clears throat> nobody wants him to meet that condition more than we do, right? We need a break. We want him to be able to watch TV later on, right? So you better believe that we are setting him up for success in the morning, praising his obedience every time he obeys to try everything in our power to foster the conditions being met, true? It's something like that with God, except that he's God. And so he's able to unconditionally guarantee conditional obedience without compelling any of us to act against our will. I'll say that again. Because he's God, he's able to unconditionally guarantee our conditional obedience without compelling any of us to act against our will. Let's tease that out just for a moment. When God's promises contain conditions, as they sometimes do in Scripture, they are real conditions, and they must be met in order for the promise to be fulfilled, to receive the blessings promised. But in some cases, we see that he chooses to unconditionally guarantee that his people will meet the conditions and therefore inherit the promises. And he does so in such a way we're worried about maybe our free will being violated in that. He does so in such a way that we remain truly free as we do meet the conditions. That's how at least one strain of Christian theology over the centuries, one that I happen to fall into, resolves the tension that we see here. In Genesis 12, 15, 17, 18, 22, in those chapters we've seen on one hand some unconditional promises that are now confirmed in chapter 22 on the basis of Abraham's obedience I'm trying to draw your attention to the conditional language here in chapter 22. You see it in verse 16? He says, because you have done this, I will bless you. And then, in your offspring all nations will be blessed. Why? Because you listened to my voice, verse 18. 
The implication is that if Abraham hadn't been willing to sacrifice Isaac, he would have forfeited at least some of these blessings. And that makes enough sense if you're just looking at, say, chapter 17, where the covenant blessings were framed in conditional terms. Back in chapter 17, God says, walk before me and be blameless, and then I will make my covenant with you. But then that's a bit confusing, isn't it? Because in chapter 15, God unconditionally promised those blessings. There was no if involved. And in chapter 18, he confirmed the certainty of the blessings uh, when he said all nations on earth will be blessed through Abraham. Uh, Sarah will have a son a year from now. No conditions, no ifs attached. So once we get to chapter 22, we're feeling a tension. So are these promises we've been seeing throughout Abraham's story conditional or are they unconditional? Can Abraham forfeit them or are they his no matter what? There's plenty of debate among Bible scholars on this. Here's what we might say, and it has major implications for us today. It seems clear enough that at least some of the promises were conditional on obedience. Otherwise, why the language in verses 16 through 18? But it seems equally clear in places like chapter 15 and 18 that God unconditionally purposed to bring about the conditional obedience required. In other words, God was going to strengthen Abraham with the faith needed to obey the command to offer up his beloved son. Therefore, meeting the condition and enabling him to inherit the conditional promises. It's deep. But friends, the great news in that is that the Bible teaches the same with regards to our salvation and the promises that are ours in Christ. You and I have to persevere to the end in order to be saved. Jesus told us so, Matthew 24, 13. But if we are truly his, he will provide. He promises to. He promises to provide the faith needed to persevere until the end. Philippians 1, right? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Unconditionally, he'll do it. That's why... In verse 14, Abraham names this place what he names this place. What does he name it? The Lord will provide. He doesn't name it, you better obey. Isn't that so freeing that the passage itself points us to, not to the takeaway, obey like Abraham, but rather to the takeaway, the Lord will provide? Now, as soon as we say the Lord will provide, it raises the question, the Lord will provide what? And in the immediate context, what does the Lord provide? A ram, right? To take the place of Isaac as a sacrifice for the burnt offering. But here's a question. If Abraham obeyed, which he did, if he passed the test, which he did, why is a sacrifice still needed at all? Why all this about the ram? There's no sin involved. Why not leave the ram alone? Call it a day. Set him free. Abraham knew why. Here's what Abraham knew. We can't do enough good to make up for our bad. In other words, obeying in one instance may exempt us from incurring God's wrath in that moment, for that moment. But without some sort of intervention, our guilt still remains for the many times that we disobeyed in the past. Abraham understands that, which is why he knows that a sacrifice is still appropriate. Just because he avoided sin in this particular instance... He still has plenty of sin in his past to be atoned for. And a burnt offering was one way to seek that atonement. So he takes the ram that's caught in the thicket and offers it up as a burnt offering in place 
of his son. But if we read on, and we did read on, we see that the Lord will provide, that name for this place, may encompass more than just the immediate provision for a ram. There's an ongoing provision laid out in verses 15 through 18. You see that? 15 to 17 lay out the provision of an abundant offspring that Abraham's going to have, the desire of his heart. But then in the second half of verse 17, the language takes a turn to focus apparently on the provision of one particular offspring, one singular offspring of Abraham, you might say, and what this one special offspring is going to do. You see it? Verse 17. He'll possess the gates of his enemies. The nations of the earth will be blessed through him, the singular offspring. Interesting. So the conditional and the unconditional promises of the previous chapters are all reaffirmed here after the condition is met and Abraham faithfully passes the test. And the umbrella heading for all of it, the Lord will provide. God will provide. He provides the faith that enables Abraham to meet the condition of chapter 17 and pass this test resulting in the fulfillment of the conditional promises. He provides the ram that will atone for Abraham's past sin, and he promises to provide offspring, including one particular offspring through whom all the promises will come true. Maybe that offers some hope to those of us who remain worried that we won't receive God's blessings because we haven't met the conditions for those blessings. Is that you? Church family, if we truly belong to Christ, he will provide the faith that we need to meet the conditions for his promises. And when we fail to meet those conditions, as Abraham sometimes did, he'll provide the means of atonement. And then his spirit will strengthen us to repent and empower us to meet the conditions again. He will provide. Our big idea today is this. May we lay down the objects of our heart's desires, trusting that God will provide. May we lay down the objects of our heart's desires, trusting that God will provide. When God called Abraham to give up his son, our friend Abraham must have been feeling like one of those sheep getting dunked in an antiseptic and held under. But the Lord was working on his heart. God was using this trial in ways Abraham couldn't understand. God wanted to do something in Abraham, in Isaac. Can you imagine what was done in Isaac's heart as a result of this scene? And in us, as a result, God had plans for what he'd do in us through this story. But listen, the naming of this place, the Lord will provide, reminds us that it would be the tragedy of all tragedies to end this sermon on a note of some sort of be like Abraham sort of message, right? In the story we just read, there are about a thousand arrows pointing in bright neon lights to the larger significance of this story that I'm about to use our last two minutes to unfold. So if you catch nothing else today, make sure you catch this. And especially uh, if you're one of our Jewish friends and you've maybe never realized how uh, this passage in your Bible points far beyond itself, listen here. Remember when Abraham said to Isaac, God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice? We read to the end of the chapter, as we did, and, and we see, we say, oh, look, Abraham spoke better than he knew. God does miraculously provide a ram as a substitute. But what if it's not coincidental that it's a ram and not the lamb that Abraham foretold?
What if that ram was only a partial fulfillment of Abraham's words? What if Abraham was more right than he knew about a lamb that, was, that would be provided? But what if the true fulfillment of those words would have to wait another 2,000 years? Fast forward a few centuries with me. Not the full 2,000 years, just a few centuries. You find in 2 Chronicles 3, the only other mention of this location, Moriah. See what happens at Mount Moriah, 2 Chronicles 3? It's the place where the temple gets built in Jerusalem. And so for centuries after Abraham, generation after generation, Jewish families would take their kids past Mount Moriah and point up to that mountaintop. And what would they say to the next generation? When the next generation would ask, how is all the brokenness in the world going to be made right? Why do we keep doing these sacrifices time and time again? Where is it all headed, mommy? Where is it all headed, daddy? What would parents say? Our scripture text actually told us what they said in verse 14. Did you catch that? They'd say, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Not on the mount of the Lord it's important that you obey. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Verse 14, our author said, many years after Abraham, hundreds of years after Abraham said, as it is said to this day, this is what we still are saying today. <clears throat> Fast forward with me some more now. Now we're a full 2,000 years after the events of Genesis 22. And just as Isaac had trudged up that hill, somewhere in the mountains of Moriah, we find Isaac's great, 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 great grandson walking up one of the mountains in the same vicinity carrying the wood that would be used as the instrument of his torture and death. Just like Isaac, he didn't fight back. He didn't struggle. Even when his father, from whom he had never known anything but love, nevertheless raised the knife to slay his beloved son. But unlike in Genesis 22, this time, the father followed through. This time, there was no ram to be found as a substitute. Because Isaac's great, 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 great grandson hanging on that cross, he was the lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the promised singular offspring of Abraham through whom all nations would be blessed. His name was Jesus, Jesus Christ, the one and only beloved son of his heavenly father, the God of the universe. He himself stepped in as substitute for you and for me, the ones who deserved to be dying on that wood on the mountains of Moriah. Instead, we watched from a safe distance as he took his place where we should have hung and died the death where we should have died. Do you know him? Do you know the one who climbed that mountain with the wood on his back for you? If you don't, you can. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life.
grab one of us before you leave today. Send a text, send a call to somebody you know in our congregation. We'd love to pray with you and help get you started on life with Jesus. If you do know Jesus, my prayer this morning is that as God brings us to our own mountains, where he asks us to lay down those objects of our heart's desires, that our eyes would be fixed on the one who climbed that mountain in our place. And that we'd be so transformed by that vision that we would increasingly trust him to provide once again far beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. Let's pray. Lord, you provided for us. You provide for us each day. You provided breath in our lungs this morning. You provided food for our nourishment. You provided a family of sisters and brothers with whom we could gather without fear of persecution to worship you. So Lord, we're most floored this morning by your provision of a lamb, the lamb, par excellence, the lamb who is slain to take away the sins of the world, my sins, our sins, the sins for which we deserved to die on that wood. But instead you stepped in and took it in our place. Lord, may we be gripped this week, not by the heavy burden that's on our shoulders to obey you, but rather by how that burden was removed when you took it on your back, carried it up the hill, bore it in your own body on the tree to make atonement for us when we could never, ever make atonement for ourselves, even with all of our best efforts toward perfection. In Jesus' name.